Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick, and this is episode number 31 of the Mandolins and Beer Podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. It's also brought to you this week by Peghead Nation. Peghead Nation streaming video courses in mandolin, guitar, banjo, fiddle, dobro, ukulele, and bass. You'll learn bluegrass, old time, and other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors and guests of this podcast in Roots Music. PegheadNation.com features a great lineup of mandolin instructors with courses including beginning mandolin and intermediate bluegrass mandolin with Sharon Gilchrist, bluegrass mandolin jam favorites, and the advancing mandolinist with Joe K. Walsh, Monroe-style mandolin with Mike Compton, melodic mandolin tunes with John Reichman, chord melody mandolin with Aaron Weinstein, Irish mandolin with Marla Feibish, and theory for mandolin and fiddle with Chad Manning. Courses include high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab, Play-along tracks and plenty of tunes and songs to play. Join any of Peghead Nation's video courses now and get your first month for free. Just go to PegheadNation.com, use the promo code MANDOLINBEER at checkout. That's all one word, MANDOLINBEER. I'm recording this part here on March 3rd, and if you are anywhere near the TV or um, the internet, you saw that Nashville had a massive storm last night. A tornado ripped through parts of Nashville, East Nashville, surrounding areas. There's a ton of damage. There's fatalities there's injuries it's it's a terrible things so you know keep your eye peeled for any way you can help out if possible keep them in your thoughts and uh, it is really heartwarming to see the people in this community though of of musicians all my musician friends that have been posting who posted that they're all right willing to lend a hand asking people if they need rides food it's 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 amazing to see this community and i think it speaks highly of the uh of the mandolin community and the musician community in nashville uh, all together. So um, good luck to all y'all out there. I'm definitely thinking of you. And then also uh, thinking of people, I meant to mention this last week, um, but uh, if you've ever been to Dublin and gone to, to the Dublin Bluegrass Collective at Cheney or p- picked with any Dublin players, you probably picked with Aaron Sheehan. And um, when I mentioned I was going to Ireland oh, a while ago on my Mandolins and Beer Facebook page before this podcast ever started, the first email I got was from Aaron and he invited me out to play I went and played a couple gigs with him, and he's a guy that I will always remember, um, and I've only met him twice, so I can only imagine, um, you know, the uh, the thoughts that people who got to play with him a lot have. So uh, Patrick and Lily and all the all the folks there at the Dublin Bluegrass Collective, I just wanted to send my condolences and um, and well wishes to you as well. Okay, so. Uh, let's get back to the spirit of things here, and let's uh, first off, I want to thank everybody. I've got more Patreon subscribers again this week. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. I'm trying to put a lot of quality stuff up there for you all to work on for 10 minutes a day, just giving you any sort of motivation. This last week, I put up the examples of how to kind of try to find the melody or a solo for a song and showed you the target notes to aim for and where to find them in a chop chord, so that's up there. This week I'll be posting a pinky exercise that my guest Paul this week talks about. And I also have a finger buster that I kind of came up with that is fun one to play. And I'm going to post that and the tab to that as well. So the Patreon, it's four bucks just to subscribe to it if you want to support the podcast. Eight bucks if you want access to the videos and tabs. I've also got some merchandise, stickers, hats, shirts, koozies, and... Um, you can support me for free just by hitting subscribe, leaving a review at the iTunes podcast, 
website um, or doing a rating and all that stuff. But just you listening always means the world to me. So thank you so much. Next week, my guest is Lauren Price. I know I mentioned last week that she was going to be the guest this week, but I had some scheduling conflicts with recording an album at Alan Bybee's place, which went amazing. I can't wait for you guys to hear it. Uh, A little more, some more finishing touches up there coming up. So Lauren's next week. All right, cheers, everybody. Enjoy this with Paul Glass. So now I'd like to welcome to the podcast, Mr. Paul Glass. Hey, Paul, how are you? Just great. How are you, Daniel? Good, man. Great, great. Um, you're calling from Austin, uh, the Austin, Texas area today? I am. I'm out in the uh, neighboring tiny, tiny little town of Driftwood, Texas. Driftwood, Texas. Nice. Nice. Do you know uh, Kim Warner? I do. Absolutely. Great player. Nice guy. Do you guys get to play together? We actually have done, we've known each other a little bit uh, since he came to town. Um and more recently have done a handful of gigs where we've had two mandolins, uh, you know, semi sort of kind of bluegrass gigs with two mandolins. Uh, Actually we did one with two mandolins and bass. Oh wow. And then we've done uh, another more recently with uh, two mandolins, bass and guitar and uh, just for very casual things, but a lot of fun and, and, uh, he uh, always makes me have to up my game, so it's great. <laughs> oh, man, that's a lot of mandolin firepower at, at one gig, too. That's great. We uh, On those things, we have occasionally switched out with one or one or the other of us playing tenor guitar. Oh, also, wow. just for a little uh, relief of, the, uh, of that higher range. But, <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, cool, man. Yeah. And then yeah. uh, before we started here, you were telling me um, about the – company your your wife founded which actually kind of ties into musicians here if you want to talk about that real quick that would be awesome absolutely so my wife makes uh started a company that makes plant-based skincare products the best known of which are used by rock climbers all over the world and when i say all over the world the products are distributed in, in at least 38 countries um the the original product and the best known of the products is uh is under a brand called Climb On, like like Climb a Mountain On, <laughs> um, and it's um, it's a product called a Climb On Bar, which is so none of these products have any synthetics of any kind, and the cl- Climb On Bar is made of beeswax and plants, basically very uh, plant-based oils and essential oils, and basically in 1990s, in, in the early 90s, she was making skincare products that help people and she was around some rock climbers in the boulder area who said wow you're making products for all these other people can you make something for rock climbers because we're tearing the crap out of our hands and we're trying (laughs) to trying to save our calluses and uh and our skin and so she made this product that was the first solid lotion bar that we're aware of being generally marketed and it's the first skincare specifically for rock climbers and rock climbers, just like mandolin players and guitar players, actually want their calluses. Um, and 
because uh, that's usually the first question people ask me is, hey, if I put this on my calluses, won't it make them too soft and degrade them? And no, it, it works for rock climber calluses. It works for mandolin player calluses too. <laughs> and uh, so we have a little uh, a little gift treat for listeners to of this podcast. Um, if you go to the if you would like to try any of the products on the website, you can go to. The company name is Skin Nourishment, and here I'll use a, a musical term. The name it has in what in music would be an elision. That is, the company name is S-K-I-N-O-U-R-I-S-H-M-E-N-T.com. So it's skin and nourishment share an N, in other words. Oh, all right, right so, on. So uh, if you go to skinnourishment.com and when you're got stuff in your you're ready to check out on anything you want to buy if you use uh gift code or discount code mandolin all lowercase letters you'll get 20 percent off on anything you decide to purchase so you can try a climb on bar and it really that's what i use when when my uh fingertips are feeling like dog meat and they need a little bit of uh <laughs> need a little bit of repair uh it works really well so uh, get give it a try yeah i, I could use that this week <laughs> <laughs> it's great for those uh those times when you've been playing non-stop at a festival and and uh, uh need a little relief so it it uh it spread through word of mouth to all those countries because um uh, because it actually works. So uh, there you go. Yeah. And festival season and uh, camp season is just getting ready to fire up. So perfect timing. Absolutely. It also, <laughs> you know, works for uh, uh, wasp bites or scorpion bites, insect bites, all kinds of cracked heels, cracked fingertips, all kinds of stuff. That's awesome, man. Yeah. yeah. And so did you, do you teach a lot of camps still? I do about one a year now. Uh -huh. I, I have never actively uh, uh, hung my shingle out there or gone looking for camps to teach at. I love teaching. Uh, my life has gotten busy enough that I don't have a bunch of extra time to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I have taught private lessons off and on uh, since I was a late teenager, which was more than a few years ago. And, uh, and I really like that a lot. And I love teaching at the camps. Uh, the only camp I'm doing this year is River of the West Mandolin Camp, camp outside of Portland um, in June. Oh, cool. Uh, that'll be the first time that uh, Don Sternberg and I will b both be at the same camp at the same time. Oh, they usually, wow. They oftentimes switch us out. They'll have, you know, some bluegrass guys and a jazz guy and and uh and uh, uh so this will be the first time that that we've both been at the same camp i'm really looking forward to that quite a bit oh my god what a what a great guy don is oh absolutely great player great guy and you know we uh we joke about uh, being brothers separated at birth or something like that because <laughs> we're both of roughly similar ages and both got bitten by the jazz mandolin bug albeit in in slightly different ways uh, uh you know pretty early on in the in the scheme of things and uh, so we we keep threatening to do some kind of project together but 
uh, hadn't happened yet. This is the closest it has to, you know, this is a, will be the closest to uh, any kind of joint project that we've done. So, Oh, man, that that's going to be great. Yeah, it'll be a lot of fun. So how did you, how did the mandolin bug bite you? Uh, so I went to a very weird junior high and high school in the 1970s and uh, in Poughkeepsie, New York. And it was what was then called an open school. So there's a lot of freeform stuff going on there. And basically, a lot of through the influence of one local band in Poughkeepsie, there were a bunch of kids in my junior high and high school, mostly kids a few years older than I was, who started playing bluegrass-ish instruments um and playing bluegrass and old-time music and things like that and i had dabbled in music played a few other instruments not very well and never really applied myself in the right way but i think that was the first time that i saw what was involved in learning in the instrument seeing other kids um, working on instruments and practicing and seeing how they would pull a tune apart and work on sections of it and how much time it took. And I, I just really was drawn to that, wanted to participate in that. There were, um, you know, a lot of the kids were forming bands just for their own amusement. And there were about 50 guitar players. There was only one other mandolin player. And I, I love the sound of the mandolin. And I'll, and definitely part of my thinking was, wow, if I learned to play guitar, I'm never going to be in one of these bands. But if I played <laughs> mandolin and could actually you know, learn to do something with it, then somebody might let me play in their group. And that's kind of how it panned out. So it was great. Yeah. That's awesome. Who were some of your early mandolin influences? Well, initially, uh, the the mandolin playing that I first really fell in love with was, was bluegrass mandolin playing and, you know, Bill Monroe right, right off the bat. Um, The the fiddle player in that band that inspired so much, so many of us, um, was the older brother of my best friend during those periods. So I had a I had a band with uh, with the younger brother and a couple of other friends, and I had basically had access to this family's amazing bluegrass record collection. So. Um, I spent a lot of years, uh, <laughs> a lot of a lot of time listening to a bunch of really classic bluegrass stuff, and I, I the Monroe thing was was definitely the initial inspiration. As I got further into it, I think the the players, roughly in that genre, who really excited me on the mandolin as doing something different, were Buck White, who had just put out his first album.
on county records uh, with with his family group, and then also uh, Herschel Sizemore. another guy that early on I, I heard well this guy's really doing something different so um guitar playing wise Clarence White was a huge influence and I remember that we again just through connections in that little town a bunch of the guitar players got access to the live Kentucky Colonel's tapes from the Ashgrove um, that later, many of which later came out on LPs, but there was basically a friend of Byron Berlin's who sent recordings our way. And so, you know, guitar players in the school learned to play bluegrass guitar by learning those Clarence White breaks note for note. And, and hearing that I really was, I mean, Clarence was so revolutionary and I remember learning some Clarence licks when I was still in junior high and high school and thinking, why isn't anybody doing anything like this on the mandolin? And it, cause back then I don't, I don't know that anyone was. Right. And, uh, right. So that was certainly an early inspiration as well. Yeah, um, stuff's great. Yeah. Um, but as things went along, I got interested in, in other kinds of music as well. I mean, never, I never, my love for bluegrass never diminished, mm-hmm. but I, I got interested in Western swing. I started hearing some Johnny Gimble electric mandolin stuff later on at the urging of Buck White. I heard some tiny Moore. on the Bob Wills recordings and uh, you know basically I got interested in other kinds of music and mandolin was still the instrument that I played so I tried to bring that you know the ability to express myself on one instrument into other kinds of music and so there was this progression from bluegrass and New England old time music to western swing and then swing and then bebop you know all of that those interests grew while I was still in the Northeast. And then, um, what I graduated from high school at 17, stayed around town and played in a couple of bands. And then, um, I decided I wanted to play a five string electric mandolin in a Western swing band. So (laughs) that's so cool. So with $250 and no driver's license, I, moved to Austin, Texas (laughs) 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 at the age of 18. (laughs) That's cool. (laughs) This is as somebody who has young kids, you know, kids now, a 15 year old son and a 19 year old daughter. These are stories that I 
really didn't tell them early on when they were trying to figure out how to make life decisions. Uh, um, but, but no, I had through, feel free to cut me off at any point. No, no, you're doing uh, great. That's great. Through. So one of the bands that I played in after high school was a band that did, uh, Oh gosh, we did, we were playing in local bars. And so um, three of us who wanted to play country and Western swing uh, met up with a bass player and drummer who really wanted to play top 40 music. And we were all so young and stupid that we said, Oh gee, well, we'll play whatever you want if you'll play whatever we want. So we had a, (laughs) I had borrowed and had the use of a 1957 Fender electric mandolin. Oh, cool. uh, Uh, which looked really cool, but just, you know, sound wise wasn't really there, but it, it, that's what I was gigging on with that band. And so we had a, we had a song selection that could pretty much alienate anyone in about five tunes. <laughs> and, 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 uh, so, um, so I did that. And then I also played in another group that did bluegrass and Western swing and, really wanted to be going more in the Western swing direction. And during that time period, I'd gotten in touch with Tiny Moore, who was living in Sacramento, California, um, and bought a five-string electric mandolin from him. Oh, cool. Um, you know, through the, I mean, back in those days, you might talk on the phone, and then there was a lot of letter writing and follow-up calls and all of that kind of stuff. So, um uh, so anyway, that led to me eventually wanting to do more Western swing. I'd gotten to know over the phone, had gotten to know a guy who was then playing with a sleep at the wheel. And I asked him the stunningly stupid question. Uh, hey, do you know any Western swing bands that want to hire a five string electric mandolin player? <laughs> And he said, well, no, but if that's what you're into, Austin's as good a place as any. And if you, come on down. I'll put you up for a couple of days and show you around town. So, wow. Again, with, you know, at the age of 18 with $250 and no driver's license, that was the best <laughs> offer I had. And I, <laughs> I, I caught a ride with a trumpet player and with, but it, you know, this was all pre cell phone. So I got this ride and it took us forever because there's only one driver. And, uh, and, uh, we called our contact in Austin and said, we're on the way down. And, you know, it, it was probably five days, six days or so before we made it down there. And uh, between when we left the Northeast and got there, he quit the band and left town. But, oh, no uh, way. <laughs> yeah, but, it, you know, his his wife is expecting us and put us up for a few days. And, it, you know, it all I've been here since then, you know, which is now most of my life. It all kind of worked out. Oh, wow. my gosh. That is wild, man. <laughs> and so, so that was in 1977, summer of 77. And then um, that um, that Thanksgiving, I got on a Greyhound bus and went out to visit my paternal grandmother, who happened to live in a suburb of Sacramento, which is where Tiny Moore was. So I went out to visit grandmother for Thanksgiving so that I could meet tiny Moore in person and take mandolin lessons from him and uh wow. so that that was november of 77 which was really early on 
in the whole thing. Tiny had not really been rediscovered then. Mm, sure. uh, he had he had not yet. I asked him if he had met David Grisman, and he said no. He had heard about him, but he had not met him. Oh no, kidding! Yet. Yeah, it was wow. really early on. Um, the first time I met Tiny, and he I, I think was quite amused and that this guy had come all the way from Texas in order to study with him and meet him and all that. So it was of course a huge thrill for me. So, Oh yeah. What kind of stuff, what kind of stuff that did, did you guys kind of work on that? um, I mean, because he is so fast. (laughs) (laughs) It still blows my mind that, that, that stumbling, that album is so hard to find. Um, yeah, I don't know that it's even on CD any longer or streaming anywhere. Yeah, I don't know uh, the status of that, but yeah, he was just you know he was just one of those one of my all time music heroes. He was yeah, you know anyone that I've met who ever met Tiny is in universal agreement that he was a super nice guy. He was always nice to everybody that has ever encountered him Mm -hmm. and he would you know he just had that sound you know he was a brilliant player as a young man and then he by the time i met him he wasn't a young man anymore he had been doing this for a very long time had a fully developed vocabulary that was totally unique to him and Mm -hmm. you know there were only two guys who played the electric mandolin with bob wills and the texas playboys um Tiny Moore, and then later on, Johnny Gimble. Right. And they both sound completely like themselves and really unique in the in the mandolin world. And those guys were, jazz-wise, my biggest, by far, my biggest influence on the, among the mandolin players. I did meet and do a little bit of playing with, and took one lesson from, but also did some playing with Jethro, and we met up various times, um, through the years and Jethro of course you know you don't get any better than that great player but the in terms of the guys that really tiny and johnny were really much more influential on my own mandolin vocabulary right um, than jethro yeah yeah those tiny jethro albums though holy cow oh it's great and i you know another time when i came through the sacramento area uh tiny had finished doing the back-to-back album but it wasn't out yet and i came up from san francisco to yeah, that's a whole nother story. <laughs> I, I took a bus up from San Francisco to Sacramento and he said, yeah, I'll, I'll just meet you at the bus station. I'll pick you up. And so uh, I've told this story before, but so I had an acoustic mandolin and an electric mandolin with me and uh, Tiny showed up on his motorcycle <laughs> wearing his, at that point he was playing with Merle Haggard's band. Wearing, so he's wearing his Merle Haggard and the Strangers windbreaker and he, we strapped the two mandolins on the back of the motorcycle and he said, hop on and hold on to me. And so I'm, I'm riding through Sacramento with two mandolins 
behind me on the motorcycle, holding on to Tiny Moore's waist and reading The Strangers on the back of his <laughs> blue windbreaker, bonnet, monogrammed windbreaker, and thinking, you know, this is just unreal. I wish I had a photo of this. Oh, that's great. <laughs> but but anyway, when he took me back to uh, Tiny Moore Music, his, his little studio, and played me on a reel-to-reel recorder, played me the uh i guess the i don't know if they were the final mixes or the rough mixes for that recording which was he was very proud of and and it was such a thrill to hear that asking when one of the cuts came on where he played acoustic mandolin i i said what what acoustic what acoustic are you playing and he said that one there and he pointed to a really cheap little mandolin that was on a pegboard above us next to a bunch of other cheap mandolins that had a little <laughs> price sticker you know price tag hanging from a string on it you know for whatever it was 250 dollars or something like that and so yeah wow <laughs> That is cool. Yeah. So, <laughs> when you when you went up there for that fir- those first lessons with Tiny, how how far into like playing some of that Western swing stuff were you in your playing? Uh, you know, I look back and I go, "Gosh, I was so early on that and such an amateur." But I, the truth is, I had done gigs playing Western swing. Mm-hmm. I had been playing that vocabulary for a few, working on that stuff for a few years. A lot of what we did there was you know because i didn't have a ton of time with him and so i was really trying to get loaded up on stuff to work on and so um we we looked at tunes that i might want to learn to play and basically he would write out a chord chart for me and i would chunk chords for him and he would just improvise and then afterwards we'd turn the recorder off and if i could you know actually have my whereabouts together i would say hey well on that second chorus when you were doing you know dealing with such and such a chord what were you thinking there what did you do there and so there was some of that there was some of certainly i'd listened to enough tiny thing that things that i had some specific questions about how did he think about things or even oh i remember there's a classic arpeggiated lick that he does in the beginning of his uh fat boy rag solo in the key of g it's over a g chord uh before you go to the four chord in the blues progression and i remember saying now are you playing that here which would basically be third position uh or and and then i did it again in first or are you playing it here in first position and he kind of went well definitely in, in the in the third position version, but he kind of went, oh, I never thought about doing it in first <laughs> position. <laughs> you know, no, no, I wouldn't do it there, you know? So, and as I listen back, you, you, a more educated ear can really tell where he's playing it, but I was so green that I couldn't. <laughs> 
Yeah. So, that's... But he was he was very very generous with his time and and uh, I met up with him various other points. When, living in Austin was great because a lot of these people would come down for things that tape either Austin City Limits tapings or things that taped in the same studios or other gigs around Texas, and so I got to see. Um, Tiny a number of times. I got to see Jethro a number of times when he came down there. When they, uh, Johnny Gimble lived at various times, you know, lived in the area, uh, Central Texas area. So I, you know, I gig with Johnny. I studied with him. Oh, wow. Uh, and, you know, there's a whole long story about that, which I can tell you. But, but I had a lot of exposure for a period of years to Johnny. Um, and, uh, so I was really fortunate in that regard to have, I think back now to uh, to have been able to have contact with those three guys who to me were just the you know the pinnacle of of any swing or jazz related playing on the mandolin of that generation. It's just you know um, I was incredibly fortunate. Yeah, they're giants. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, and each each uh, in their own Mount Rushmore way, each completely unique. Yeah, and actually, Jethro's one hundredth birthday is uh, March tenth, just a few days wow. from from when we're talking now. Very cool. Yeah, super yeah. cool. Man, that's yeah. great. So, what did you go to school for music? Well, you were in Austin as well. Well, I I. Uh, I did eventually get my, after a period of many years, I got my uh, BA from the University of Texas at Austin in what I like to refer to as the highly paid field of American studies. Uh, but, <laughs> but, uh, but a lot of people assumed I was a music major, uh, both because I went to UT Austin because it was the college that I knew about in the town where I was already living and making a living playing music. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I took a lot of music classes, a lot of jazz theory classes, jazz improv classes. I played for a period. I played in the UT Jazz Orchestra. So the, the jazz big band uh, there in what would normally be the guitar chair, I was playing five string electric mandolin oh, and reading neat. the guitar charts. So as far as I know, I was the first mandolin player in America to do regular performances with a full big band, uh, like a non-Western swing big band, yeah, uh, which wow. was really fun. But I, you know, during that period I was, I was doing that. I was playing with a lot of the Texas singer songwriters um, I was doing some bluegrass gigs and I was playing in a Western swing band and, you know, freelancing with a whole bunch of groups in a whole bunch of different styles, uh, just making a living and going to school. Yeah. Yeah. Well, man, it's definitely uh, all those things I think is what makes you such a unique player. And if, and if people aren't with, familiar with you listening to this, um, you have two albums and it looks like it's now they're, com- they're combined into one release. Is that how that is now? Yeah, the first first album was done on a uh, on a little label. The first album is just called Paul Glass, and uh, it was done on a label called Amazing Records, uh, much beloved for their slogan: "If it's a hit, it's amazing." And uh, <laughs> sometimes, 
people said if you could find it it's amazing <laughs> but, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but the the president of that company um started got associated basically started another record company he was associated with a uh a blues record label called antones records and and then um the non-blues version of that under the same management was called dos records dos as in two in spanish and so the president of that company who had been the president of amazing went over to antone's dos records and then brought my contract over there and we did the second album on dos and then he bought out the rights to the first album and they eventually put the two out as a two CD set with three new bonus tracks at the end. Um, that So the first album was called Paul Glass on Amazing Records. The second album was called The Road to Home on Dose Records. And the third album, which is just the combination of the two CDs plus the three bonus tracks, was called One More Night. And that was also on Dose Records. And they're all out of print now. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Is there anywhere people do you have them on their online digitally or are they on Spotify or? No, they're they're You know, if you can find a used copy somewhere and uh, it's a long story and I don't own the rights to them and I haven't been able to get them. So, oh, man. <laughs> but, you know, maybe maybe someday I'll get them back. Yeah, <laughs> no I'll, kidding. And we'll put them on. Put them on Apple Music or Spotify or something like that. But yeah, yeah uh, right now it's on a need-to-know basis, apparently. Jeez, that's a <laughs> that's a huge disservice to the music world from the people the people holding back from that because those albums, which I have, and I did buy them. I did buy them both um, off of uh, Amazon used because at the time when I first heard of you, it was the only way I could find them. So that makes total yeah. sense. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, thank you for that. Or, or as Jethro probably would say. Oh, you're the one. So. <laughs> Actually, yeah, gosh, that's so. That's what Don said too. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah the um the the songwriting is so cool, and you really bridge the gaps of all these influences. Like, there's the acoustic mandolin stuff. There's the jazzy stuff. There's the western swing stuff. Um, the song, the tilt. I mean, the first time I heard that, I had to like stop and go i'm like what just happened here <laughs> this is amazing Thank you. Uh, the, of of all the things, when I kind of look back, well, let me say this. I've had long stretches where I was a full-time musician. I was absolutely a full-time musician from 1980 to 2000, nonstop. Wow. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, and for many of those years, to the best of my knowledge, was the only full-time mandolinist in the state of Texas. There were other people who played some mandolin, but I don't know of anyone else who was really keeping the lights on from just playing the mandolin. Right. And, uh, wow. 
Um, that's long since not been the case anymore. There are a bunch of great players in Texas now, but, but, um, in looking back, I, I kind of look back on, well, what things have I done and what, you know, what made sense and what has been personally rewarding and, and what do I want to continue doing and all of that kind of stuff. And, uh, the kind of reflection that I probably didn't do much of when I was, a youngster but looking back on it the writing has been really fulfilling that it's the one of the things that i've continued to enjoy that other people have said was meaningful to them and and uh you know continued to kind of hold up over a period of time and that that tune the tilt you mentioned um one of the guys that i got to know later in his life um sort of out of the blue it was a a great writer about jazz named Gene Lees. He was a former um, editor of Downbeat magazine. He used to be Bill Evans' roommate. And he oh, wow. uh, he's wrote a bunch of books about music and about jazz. He also wrote the English lyrics to a lot of the Jobim tunes. But anyway, Gene Lees, cool, cool guy. And uh, he, somebody got my first album to him and then i got a call from him out of the blue and he said you know he said paul i get all these recordings and you know you can tell in the first couple of seconds and i put put your recording on and i heard it was the tilt is that first cut and he said he basically said what the hell is this he went searching for the package that it came in on he said i had to call you you know that is that's great yeah, I felt the, I had the same feeling. I was like, "Holy cow, this is this is I can't believe I hadn't heard it before, you know." And and um and then the like in researching it, like those are almost all your tunes on both of those albums. Yeah, I can't remember exactly. I think maybe on the first album maybe there's one non-original. I don't mm-hmm. I don't have them in front of me. Uh um I think Move was on the first album, which is a song by Denzel Best. a drummer for miles davis but other than that i think all the tunes are originals and you know there's a pretty good stylistic range that first album is all acoustic the second album they wanted some electric cuts so Mm -hmm. there are two two tunes on electric and i'm trying to think the second album i know we did airmail special which obviously i didn't write uh but i'm i oh and we also did Little Niles, which is a jazz waltz by a, a jazz piano player named Randy Weston. Those were the, the two non-originals, but yeah, all the 
all the rest of the tunes are originals and actually that first that all the tunes on the second album you know people say well you got your whole and then you got six months to write the second one which is kind of what happened kind of what happened all of those tunes on the second album were written because i had a record deal i mean for whatever that sounds loftier than it is but i had a record that needed to be put out Mm -hmm. and i needed i had guys that would play on it and i needed tunes for that uh so all of those tunes on the second album that i wrote were written after the first album came out oh wow and uh and and some of them were so new a bunch of them i was still looking at chord charts in the studio it's to help me help guide me through improvising on them i was very green at playing a bunch of them so i kind of like a second shot at it at this point (laughs) (laughs) is there is there any plans to record again in the in the future Oh, you know, people, if, anyone who knows me would probably be rolling their eyes at this point. Yeah, there have been plans for ages. Life mm-hmm. is life. You know, life gets busy and complicated. And sure. I, you know, I, I've, I've got two kids. I had a giant car wreck that just took me, you know, almost took me out years ago. Oh, and no had, way. You know, and, and various uh, various, you know, when you have kids and want to buy a house, there's various day jobs that have you know distracted me at at points and and so uh so the guitarist who's who i co-produced these albums with Mm -hmm. and who who i've played with for over 40 years is a guy named mitch watkins and he and i have always done a lot of duo stuff and there's a lot of you know he 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 and i clicked musically when we first played together in 1979 wow so we've been playing together for over 40 years and there's as with any kind of ongoing conversation there's a you know a lot develops there so people people have wanted us to do a duo album and we've wanted to do one we started one uh a few years back and we where we kind of spent a day trying to record some electric stuff, maybe a day and a half. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't really happy with what I was getting on that. And then we we kind of said, let's try the acoustic thing. And then very quickly knocked out four tunes. And we kind of went, yeah, we should have just started, (laughs) tried that to begin with. So we have four tunes that I like very much and we need to go back in and just finish the rest. Um, And I, you know, between then and now he, he uh, left town for a while to uh, do the last 18 months of tours with uh, as Leonard Cohen's guitar player. Oh, nice. Um, and, and then, uh, and then I had, you know, I had some, uh, uh, my parents passed away, a bunch of other stuff that all, you know, distracted uh, that led to distractions or I let them be distractions. So uh, you know, that's still on my bucket list to, to finish that duo album with Mitch. And I, you know, I'm, I just wrote two new tunes in the last month that uh, I'd like to record. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, it's still on the list. Yeah, that's great, man. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about a, a majority of the players that, have, that I've interviewed so far. This is going to be, I think, episode 31, um, our bluegrass. So yeah. How, how can I pick your brain a little bit about the learning swing or way to, ways to approach that style of music? Um, 
I've got some ideas, but let me start by trying to deflect massively, (laughs) 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 which is, which is, you know, I I have a few sort of random things to say about it. Yeah. Yeah. One is that, that, that there, I used to play gigs, a lot of gigs at a, the oldest dance hall in Texas, a place called Green Hall down in Green, Texas, um, spelled G-R-U-E-N-E. So it's a German name. Um, should not be pronounced green. And there was a guy <laughs> who who used to sit in the front room where we would play and he had a sketch pad and he would draw the musicians. And the guy was there all the time for a period of years. And, I, and then I ha- didn't see him for probably... 15, 20 years, and he showed up at a gig of mine in Austin, and he had a sketch pad, and he was drawing the musicians. And I talked to him on the break, and I said, "Man, I'm so happy to see you're, you know, you're still drawing." And he goes, "Yeah, I'm still chewing on that bone." <laughs> and and it so reminded me of what we do in music that I just think it takes a long time, and I and I think that I think that one. One of the things I love about music is it can be as simple or as complicated as you want it to be. You can learn three songs and play a ton of country tunes or bluegrass. I mean, three chords and play a ton of bluegrass and country songs and be really happy with that. Or and you can also spend a lifetime trying to learn everything you can about all kinds of music and still never really scratch the surface and so on learning to try to get closer to your answering your question i think to learn how to play western swing or jazz i'm really not a guy who believes in this completely straight line linear approach that you you start at position a and you go through the alphabet you by the time you get to z you have mastered being a (laughs) jazz mandolinist (laughs) right I think that it's a lot more like that artist where you're still chewing on that bone and, you know, you do it a little differently and you keep working on it and you never really succeed. But but the way you chew on that, you know, the ways you, you approach the issue, the, the 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 all the different things that you, that you bring to the party do influence what you end up sounding like. So so how to learn to play jazzy part of it is listen to a lot of the kind of music, whatever kind of music you want to play, I would say, listen to a whole lot of that. Mm -hmm. Listen to it till you, it, you can hear it in your head, even if you can't play it on your instrument, because if you can't hear it, I don't care whether, whether it's country music or bluegrass or Irish music or Latin music or, or jazz or Western swing. If you can't hear that vocabulary, then you're, I don't think you're really going to be able to play it. So that's a, a starting point for jazz. There's a lot of, um, at which Western swing is related to and, or has elements of, there's a certain amount of music theory stuff and, and learning how, you know, a lot of that, there are a lot of different ways to learn that. No, there's so many resources now that are available that weren't available when I was a kid, let alone when when the people who, you know, the people 20, 34 years before me were kids. Uh, but there's so many resources that but learning how to play over chord changes, learning 
like anything, one of the things that bluegrass and jazz and Western swing all have in common is repertoire. So learning tunes, you know, whether you're learning Blue Moon of Kentucky or San Antonio Rose or all of me, to mention three different styles, you got to know that if you're going to play with other people, which is where most of the learning happens, then you got to learn, you got to know the tunes. And then how are you going to play over those tunes? And part of what I did on all of those kinds of music was to sit down and try to learn to transcribe stuff. And I, when I say transcribe, I don't mean necessarily write it down, but I did, I did a lot of learning solos or learning portions of solos learning particular moments in songs and go, I would hear a sound that I liked mm -hmm. and I would learn what's the lead instrument doing here. What's happening harmonically. What's going on chord wise. Is he using this selection of notes to move from one chord to another? And if so, how can we analyze those notes in terms of music theory? What intervals is he using to help create tension uh, to move you from a one chord to a four chord, for instance. Um, and uh, so I would say advice would be play as much as you can, learn the repertoire of the tunes that you want to play, um, analyze solos, figure out, you know, figure out what other people have done. And, I, you know, I've heard some players say, go, well, I don't want to copy anyone because I want to sound like myself. I don't want and I, I gotta, I don't, I think you're gonna end up copying whether you want to or not, whether you do it deliberately by really sitting down and learning or whether you do it uh, happen in a happenstance way by just copying what you have rattling around in your head from having heard the radio all day. And, and uh, so for me, I really was never worried that I was gonna sound like someone else. I always kind of knew that, I was going to play the way I wanted to play. And then if I learned a Bill Monroe lick or a Tiny Moore lick or a Johnny Gimble lick or a Charlie Parker lick or a Charlie Christian lick, I wasn't going to sound like any of those guys, even if I really wanted to. I was <laughs> right. still going to I was still going to sound like me. And at the end of the day, I took home little bits of those things and they all get thrown in the blender of your brain at some point and And they come out in a way that, you know, for better or worse, it, you know, it sounds like me, even though I, I, in any given moment I could say, oh, well, this thing here I is a total ripoff of Johnny Gimble. But as much as I want, it, I'm not going to play it like Johnny or use it like Johnny or it's surrounded by a little bit of something I made up and maybe an idea I got from Tiny and maybe some Bill Monroe and maybe something I can't even identify. So Yeah, that's it's, great. That does that answer your question or is that way too far reaching? <laughs> no, no, man. It makes total sense. I mean, that whole copying people, I mean, that's how you get your own style by learning licks from all these different people. And then eventually when you go to take a solo, it's bits and pieces of all that sort of stuff that make you, you. Yeah. So I actually, I have a, I have a story that, you know, cause I, I think about pivotal moments here and I, mm -hmm. I have a, a pivotal moment in, yeah. that I, I've done some thinking about, um, and this happened back in the 80s. So I was, I was, like I mentioned, I was in the 80s and 90s, I was playing a ton of gigs. You know, I might be doing seven to nine gigs a week and in a, a stunning variety of styles and really working with a lot of the classic Texas singer songwriters from that period. I was playing in a Western swing band 
And I played a lot of gigs with a guy named Gene Ramey, who was a bass player who had been born and raised in Austin. And he um, moved to Kansas City for technical school, apprentice with Walter Page, who was the bass player with the Count Basie Orchestra. So Gene Ramey went on to be the bass player with the Jay McShann Orchestra. He was best friends with Charlie Parker. He's the guy who got Charlie Parker his first real gig with, with the Jay McShann Orchestra. He was best man at Lester Young's wedding. He was, you know, he played with Count Basie, Lenny Tristano, uh, Thelonious Monk, Sonny Rollins, you know, on and on and on. Uh, dated Sarah Vaughn for a while. And, you know, uh, so I was doing gigs with him. And then I was playing in Western Swing Band and then doing the singer-songwriter stuff. And I was so conscious at that point to really try to play in completely, you play in a style on each gig. I didn't want to do a Western Swing lick on a jazz gig. I did not want to do a jazz thing on a singer-songwriter gig. I was really trying to keep those styles different. And I, when I played Western Swing, I think I had a, a really kind of restricted view of I would try to do stuff that was stylistically correct between, you know, 1936 and 1952 or something like that. And I, and so this moment that I'm thinking about was that I was playing the Western swing band oftentimes had as many as 14 people in it, but I was doing a gig that had a more pared down version. And so there was basically, there were singers, there was a rhythm section and the two soloists were me and one of the greatest steel guitarists who ever lived, a guy named Herb Remington, who wrote Remington Ride. Oh, wow. Who had, who had been with Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys in the 40s um, and was truly one of the stars of Western Swing. And but he had continued to. You know, he he'd continued to grow as a player from those periods. He was still playing his butt off and. Basically, we were trading solos all night long on a three-hour gig, and he was eating my lunch. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, partly because he's, he's playing a, a pedal steel that just has this huge sound, and partly because he's one of the greatest players in the world, and partly because I realized I realized that I was trying to keep – I had this idea in my brain that I was – I needed to play – my solo like it was appropriate for western swing and i had kind of had this idea of i'm going to be very conscious about what's stylistically correct for western swing because i'm playing other kinds of music on other gigs mm -hmm. and herb was not at all restricted by that he helped develop the style and so he didn't he was playing stuff that was way way outside the box that never <laughs> would have shown up on a record in the late 40s on with bob wills he was just being musical and i it really <clears throat> i remember coming home for that gig and you know thinking chewing on it for a couple of days and the next week and all that and i just realized that i i needed to loosen my butt up and just just really trust my own musical instincts and try to be expressive in whatever situation i was in but not try to hem myself in so much of oh don't be afraid to do that you'll cross genres and and play something inappropriate just trust your own musicality because that's what the big boys are doing and i wanted to be one of the big boys you yeah know? man <laughs> that's great advice <laughs>
Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about your gear because you are one of the few people who have a signature model mandolin out there, and it is just a bad looking. I don't want to say the word, you know, but it is cool, man. <laughs> it is so cool. So what? Let's talk a little bit about your uh, your mandolins. Sure. So the one you're referring to is my five string electric mandolin. That, yeah. <clears throat> see me. Um, that was that was built by a world-class builder of electric stringed instruments named Michael Stevens, who lives nine miles outside of nine miles South of Alpine, Texas, way out in West Texas. Uh, Michael Stevens, when I met him was living in Austin. Um, and I met him originally because I was having repair work done on my, both my acoustic mandolin and my, Tiny Moore model five-string electric mandolin that I bought from Tiny, which was basically a sort of kind of a copy of his original 1952 Bigsby. And those these copies were built by a guy named Jay, Jay Roberts, who I never met, but they were they sounded really good, especially you know considering what the options were at, in at that time period, which was late 70s. Um, and but functionally it was a problematic instrument and there were just a lot of things that i didn't like about it uh in terms of ergonomics but also um it required a lot of upkeep you know i kept having to bring it back to michael to fix things that should have been done differently in my opinion and through his frustration and and my frustration we each had some ideas on how to make a better electric mandolin and we combined those ideas and michael definitely did most of the visual stuff and you know turned them into uh, an actual 3d object but but that object incorporated a bunch of suggestions that i had and uh so, so we yeah we came up with the paul glass model five-string electric mandolin uh, available from stevensguitars.com yeah it is beautiful <laughs> so so michael late when i met him he was in austin he later went on to he was hired by he was offered jobs by both to by both gibson and fender but he was hired by fender to start the fender custom shop so he oh, wow, really? was the original senior design engineer at the fender custom shop and built all the endorsement guitars during that period. Um, and uh, so he played, you know, the Eric Clapton model Fender that came out during that period. He made the one that Eric actually played. He made the, he made the Danny Gatton model Telecaster. He did, you know, I can't possibly list all that he did, but he, he built all of the junior Brown get steals as well. Oh, did he really? Yeah. Wow. That is awesome. What were you plugging it into when you were, when you recorded your, uh, like airmail special for instance is that what you, is that what you were using on that album Yeah, I so I I plugged it into 
1965 blackface Fender Twin Reverb. Oh wow! With, with that, I still have with uh, that has two of the old style Electro Voice SRO speakers, which are the heaviest speakers on the planet. They're heavier <laughs> than heavier than JBLs. And oh I, man! I I used to joke that the only reason I exercise is so I can lift my amp into the back of the car. <laughs> <laughs> that's great <laughs> but i i've since found that I, I have a very small affordable amp that i use for a bunch of gigs now that mm-hmm. that um, is working well for me cool. uh, albeit differently so i'm sure I'm, yep yep that's great and then what about your acoustic so uh, the acoustic that i've played for of my entire recorded career uh the one on those cds it was built for me in 1986 by John Monteleone. Oh, cool. It's, it's what he calls a style B, which is what most of us would call an A model. So it's an F hole mandolin with the long neck and, and, uh, um, teardrop shape body. Um, that's just, um, you know, John, this was after he had developed the grand artist design. And so he, I guess early on, Mon Leon had built some Gibson copies and certainly came out of knowledge of an F5, but he really wanted to do some things different tonally. And I think, I think his mandolins have a very, a particular voice to them that mm-hmm. he, he's quick to say that he's not trying to do uh, a copy of a lore tonally and and uh this mandolin has it's it just really um has served me well for what i do i don't know that it's it's not in and of itself the you know the classic bill monroe tone molly own is really after something different but Mm -hmm. it it records beautifully it's very even and uh it's it's uh you know i've had it since 1986 so i'm uh, we've had the chance to get to know each other. Um, more, more recently, I, I also acquired a uh, an Ellis uh, A model. Oh, nice! Um, I've I've known Tom Ellis for over forty years, and always wanted one of his mandolins, so I got one recently, and and uh, it's beautiful, and and I'm really enjoying it. And I think you know, I think Tom's a super talented builder as well, and uh, uh, this mandolin and I are getting to know each other uh, also. Mm. <laughs> What yeah. a great what a what a great process of breaking it in though, huh? It's a brand yeah. brand new beautiful instrument. <laughs> and I've got one more I should mention also yeah. that I don't pl- I don't play as much, but that I love. Um, Paul Lestock, who makes arrow instruments, arrow mandolins, built me a, a, a mandola. That at one point he said was a Paul Glass model. I don't know if he still would say that or not. But oh, at any really? rate, it's a it's a uh, it's a it's uh, it's got its own unique shape and uh, um, I certainly didn't have any input into the uh, into the design of it really but uh, but it's one that I've enjoyed playing and, and he builds beautiful instruments and uh, that's what I use mandola wise these days. All right, two more questions here for you, and the first one is and it's one of the most popular ones on the podcast. If you only had ten minutes a day to work on something to get better, what would you work on? All right, so here's where I hedge a little bit and maybe throw out a few ideas. Yeah, man, um, absolutely. Uh, so, so I do think there are a lot of different kinds of practice, mm-hmm. a lot of different things. You know, whether it's 
you know, just off the top of my head, whether it's technique stuff that you're trying to work on, if you're trying to learn to, to read better, you work on that, you tone production, uh, writing tunes, learning how to solo, uh, you know, learning at, how to solo over specific changes, learning how to improvise in general, dealing with scales, rhythmic, you know, your rhythmic, uh, uh, development and and playing with a metronome all of those things are one ones that you could easily spend way more than 10 minutes mm -hmm. you mentioned earlier that you know the songwriting thing one of the things that i like love to do is is when getting the mandolin out of the case get tuned up. i like to get tuned up right away i don't i don't want to do any playing before i get in tune mm -hmm. um i don't want to do sound check out of tune i want to get in tune first and then i really like to just take a moment and see if there's something i'm hearing in my head or something that's that could maybe turned in, into a tune that comes to me when when i'm coming from a non-musical place to oh i'm here i'm sitting down with the instrument because a lot of because i love to write tunes and a lot of my best I write more tunes when I actually try to rather than just waiting for a lightning bolt to strike somewhere. <laughs> if I sit down and say, Oh, I want to write something, then, then I tend to get more tunes out of it that way. Sure. And, and so I like to use that first moment maybe to see if there's something musical that I can discover that can come to me um, that I haven't been messing with before. The, the other thing that I like to do is I like to start up warming up really slowly. Um, I did, you know, the the tendency is to want to just pick up the mandolin and play something fast or hot or something like that. But I did hear on one of your previous podcasts, somebody was talking about the alignment between the right hand and the left hand as yeah. being critical. And I, I really believe that. And I think that that if you start out playing that a lot of times for me anyway your mileage may vary if you start out and just pick up the mandolin and try to rip through your fastest number that that alignment for me isn't always where i want it to be whereas if i play something really slowly and deliberate and try to make the notes really ring into each other and really sustain and uh, have my pick strokes be even and all of that, then that usually that helps me get that alignment together in a subconscious way that makes everything sound better. So that first 10 minutes, I might use some of it to see if there's a melody I, I, uh, hadn't played before that would work for me and maybe try to get that alignment together. I have a little exercise finger exercise thing that I got out of mandolin world news back in the, you know, stone ages and that <laughs> I still, still use that, that I like to do. And I, I usually show to students, it was ostensibly a, a little finger exercise, but, um, it works for a lot of that alignment stuff. Yeah. What's the, uh, what's well. the finger exercise? Is it, is it describable without, without seeing it? Yeah. And it's, it's not particularly musical, but it's no, very right. describable. Yeah. So basically if you're figuring that, um, in this exercise, every 
with the exception of your little finger, every finger deals with two frets. And so you pick a string, say on your G string, and you would put your third finger on the sixth fret, so the C sharp note, you play that, and then with your little finger, play the D note right above it on the seventh fret. And then you play the fifth fret with your third finger, and then the D note again with your fourth finger. And then you move to your second finger and play the fourth fret, and then the D note with your little finger, and then that second finger goes to the third fret, and then the D note. Basically, the D note is every other note. And you keep moving down, your index finger will do the second fret and the first fret, and then you walk your way back up. Cool. So basically, every every other note is a D note uh, or, or the seventh fret with your little finger, and, and then the notes in between are... Uh, progressively lower and then higher. And so it uses all of your fingers and you you try to do it slowly and get the notes to sustain into each other. Uh, You know, it's a good little workout and helps with that alignment. Yeah, that's a great one, man. It's a good one. It's not, you know, it doesn't sound like a melody. It's not particularly musical, but it is uh, physical. And it does, it came from a a period when I was really trying to get my little finger uh, up to shape and and it it does help with that that's great and then it then it is the mandolins and beer podcast so uh is there any particular beers that you favor when you're playing mandolin <laughs> I'm, i would say i'm an i like beer i'm an underachiever on that that's front. all right we've we've got a lot of uh great uh you know austin area has a lot of great independent breweries uh, and I, i'm uh you know, I, I I don't have a particular allegiance to one or the other. But I will say that two things on the beer front. Yeah. Uh, in the in the 80s and 90s, I did a lot of traveling in, in uh, tours in Europe with various singer songwriters, uh, Katie Moffat, Katie Moffat, Christine Albert, Hal Ketchum, etc. And we, uh, I loved. We would go to when we end up in some little town and. Germany, for instance, and you know they don't have a hundred beers. They just you're at the local brewery, <laughs> right. and they have what the local this little local brewery out in the sticks has, and you got a light one and a dark one. There might be a Weizen as well, but <laughs> I just I love the connection to the community and that kind of experience. Yeah, with a and and then uh if somebody held a gun to my head and said uh you know uh what's safe anywhere well a pilsner quell is pretty classic yeah for sure i like that and uh and i enjoyed my trips to the czech republic where beer is cheaper than water and it all tastes good (laughs) 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 that's great man awesome yeah well paul thank you so much for taking the time to do this you um uh, your your albums are inspirational to me um it's a travesty that they are not out it blows my mind for other people to get because i just i listen to them and it's just like those it's it they're those albums that you listen to and realize that there's um man that it's just you makes it makes me want to pick up my mandolin and work on things and i think that's the highest compliment you can give a mandolin player so thank you so much for that Thank you so much for that. That warms my heart to hear, and uh, I'm, I'm glad you're enjoying them, and, and uh, thank you for listening. Absolutely. 
Great episode with Paul. Thank you so much to Paul. The links to everything that we talked about and to Paul's information is available at mandolinsandbeer.com. You can click on them. Don't forget to take advantage of that special and get their discount off that climb on bar and get those calluses feeling good for festival season. Cheers. <laughs>